The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 11. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors the Lord, his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the image and glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all the things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We, we preach expositionally through Scripture, um, which is great, until you reach a passage like that. It would be really nice if we could just leapfrog over chapter 11 and jump right into Paul's discussion on love. Uh, people avoid expositional preaching, that is, preaching through a book of the Bible, um, straight through it. They avoid it because of texts like the one we just read. But actually, I'm, I'm glad that we're here um, in 1 Corinthians 11, and I look forward to seeing how uh, the Spirit teaches us this morning. My name is Casey Shutt. I'm uh, an elder candidate um, in the process of, of being ordained as an elder at Sacred City. Um, we've been members of the church for a couple of years. I've, I'm the headmaster at a school called Morning Star Academy. It's a preschool through 12th grade classical Christian school. And so, uh, Justin is actually at a, an Acts 29. This church is a, is a part of the Acts 29 network. And Justin is at a retreat for Acts 29 pastors. And it's so convenient that, that he missed this passage, missed the, the treat of preaching through this. Let's pray. And then we'll jump in. Father, you are, you are the creator and we are not. And yet so often we live our lives, um, we direct our lives as though we have the knowledge and wisdom of the creator. Um, we, we, we believe we have control of our lives as though we were the creator, um, but we're not. In fact, if, if we were to pilot our own lives, it would, it would be disastrous. So we ask that you would help us to be receptive to your guidance, the guidance that we find in your scripture. Even, even in a passage 
like uh, this one that we've just read, that seems that the issue seems so remote from us. Um, we pray that you would teach us through this text. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. What, what's the purpose in, in reading the Bible? And then maybe even another question is, is reading the Bible difficult for you? Right? It's difficult for me. I'll be honest. Um, especially when I encounter a text like the one we just read. Because I know I'm handling a very important book. It's very old. It's an ancient book. And I, I don't want to screw it up. Right? I want to get it right. I want to read it right. And I don't want to mess up in my reading of such a delicate, old, important book. There's this book called How to Read a Book. It's, it's actually kind of a classic. I think it was written in the 30s. And he talks about reading the Bible, and he says, The problem of reading the Bible, this is Mortimer Adler, this problem of reading the holy book is the most difficult problem in the whole field of reading. There have been more books written about how to read scripture than about all other aspects of the art of reading together. The Word of God is obviously the most difficult writing men can read, but it is also, if you believe it is the Word of God, the most important to read. So, there's a few wrong ways of reading the Bible. One is what I call the lawyer approach. Right? The Bible is filled with all kinds of laws, and it's, sort of, it's reading it to, to figure out all the different laws and how you should line yourself up with those, with those laws. Now, the problem with reading the Bible in that sort of way is that we, we tend to either become puffed up because we know the law, or you just get discouraged if we're overwhelmed by the law. Another approach to reading scripture is what I like to call the chicken soup for the soul approach. Mm. Right? It's reading the Bible for warm spiritual fuzzies. And um, Eugene Peterson, I'm kind of adapting this list from him, but he says, if you're after devotionally cozy Bible readings, you have to pick and choose a good bit. There are such huge chunks of it that will either put you to sleep or keep you awake at night. But there are also little crib sheets readily available at most Bible bookstores that tell you what parts of the Bible to read when you want to be comforted or consoled or whatever your present disposition requires. Another approach is what I call your best life now approach, right? Reading the Bible for little kind of tips on living on living well. And the Bible has lots of tips and instructions, kind of like a manual for the, for the human life um, and reading it solely for that. And then finally, there's what, what I'd like to call the intellectual approach, right? Because the Bible's an ancient piece of literature, um, just reading it and exploring it and digging into it can really get the, the brain juices flowing, right? And some people, and I've spent many years around in, in schooling and stuff, around people that didn't even believe what the Bible said, but they had devoted their entire lives to studying it, um, to studying it. It was just an intellectual exercise for them. But the problem with every one of those approaches that I just mentioned is that they're all using the Bible for their own purposes, right? Again, Eugene Peterson says, whatever group you find yourself in of those that I, that I mentioned, you're going to be using the Bible for your purposes, and those purposes will not necessarily require anything of you relationally. So you see how those approaches tend to treat the Bible as a product to be consumed, Instead, if we're thinking about how we should read a text like the one we just read and just read the Bible in general, we've got to consider what it is we're actually looking at. And what this Bible is, is it is, it is revelation, right? 
More specifically, it's God. It's the Trinitarian God revealing himself to us. Um, and so, and, and, and as a Trinity, God is a relational being. He's personal and he's relational. And we have been created in the image of God. And so we are relational beings. And because, um, because of that, our reading of Scripture should be a participation with this God, a relating to this God. It's us, it's us enjoying God as we read Scripture. And you see how that's completely different than those other approaches? One, it's sort of a product to be used. And in a relational approach to Scripture, it's us relating to God. Now, if we're relating to God through the reading of Scripture, we've got to understand what the nature of our relationship with God is. And too often... I think we treat our relationship with God like a dating relationship, right? I mean, dating really stinks. It's awkward. It's odd. You're always wondering what the status is. Does she like me? Does she not? And in that sort of situation, you've got to market yourself, right? You've got to take lots of trips to the mirror, make sure everything's in place. Um, lots of little squirts of binaca to make sure the breath is fresh. You're, you're very self-conscious, about how you are coming across before this prospective uh, person. When, when Sarah and I first started dating, um, very early on, we met in college, and we were both in college together. Um, we had been on a few dates, but certainly there was no real definition to kind of our status, I guess. And um, there, I, I was invited to participate, and it's kind of, this, this is a miracle that this even happened, and this is a whole other story, but um, I was I was. Uh, invited to participate in a date auction where guys would go up and do a little song and dance and then they would be bidded on for a date. And I thought, this is really good because now I can do this and see, you know, see if Sarah bites. That might tell me kind of the seriousness of this relationship. The only problem was I didn't have any skills. So what was I going to do? So I'm, we're brainstorming what, what I should do in front of all these people. And one of my roommates said, you should arrange flowers. And then you can give the bouquet to the person that buys you. I was like, that's brilliant. Okay, so, I'm gonna, so I went down to my local florist and kind of had a little tutorial in flower arranging. Learned the tricks of the trade. And then I set up a table and had the flowers and all the little pieces. And I basically arranged flowers, kind of Martha Stewart style. Had the bouquet. The bidding started. Good news, I, I, there was bidding taking place. I couldn't see it because the lights were so bright. I couldn't see what was going on. And finally, I was sold and uh, go down to meet this person, and it's not Sarah. <laughs> and I was like, oh. So afterwards, we were talking about it, and I kind of expressed my little bit of you know, frustration or kind of, you know, I was hoping maybe you would purchase me. And she, she said, why would I pay to have a date with you? You've been taking me out for free for like a month. <laughs> You're practical. I like that. So, as you know, we, we ended up getting married, and it all worked out in the end. But as I think back to that story, you, you got a mic ready for me? Um, just the awkwardness and the difficulty of it early on was not fun. Thanks. And so, what changed in our relationship when we got married is that we forged a covenantal bond, which is much more secure than that dating relationship ever was. And you can relax 
right? Because the relationship is held together covenantally, right? I can kind of let my belly hang out now. I've got a belly to hang out now. Um, but I, I can do that now because of, of marriage. And, and too often when, when reading scripture, we're reading it as though we're dating God. And we've got to perform, right? We've got to be on. And if, we're not, if we don't have some ma- magical insight, then we've somehow failed for the day. We fail to realize that God has covenantally connected himself to us. And that he sees Christ in us and our status before him is secure. We can let our belly hang out when we read scripture and we can enjoy it. We don't have to just get it right all the time. And St. Augustine even said, he said, you know what? If you read a passage of scripture, if, if the final goal of the Christian life is to love God and love neighbor more, you could potentially read a piece of scripture and totally miss the point of it. But if as a result of reading that scripture, you love God and love neighbor, that's not bad. Conversely, you could read the scripture perfectly, you know, in, it, in the Greek and Hebrew and come away more puffed up as a result of reading that scripture. And that's a, that's a serious problem. So when we read a passage like the one we're reading this morning, it's very important that we bear in mind what it is we're actually doing as we read scripture. We're relating to God. But God has communicated himself to us in a particular time and place. So we've got to do some interpretive work in order to understand what God is saying to us today in 2014. Now, in previous chapters, Paul has discussed what happens when people allow pagan worship to infiltrate the church. And now he turns to talk about pagan worship. Now he's turning to Christian worship. What's happening when the Christians in Corinth gather to worship? Verse 2, Paul gives the, the church at Corinth a word of approval and thanks, saying that he's glad that they're maintaining the traditions. Now, we live in an age that prizes the new, and we tend to look on skepticism. I mean, we tend to look on tradition with skepticism. But traditions can be a very good and powerful thing. My daughter is in, she was in first grade this past school year. And thanks to her, the word noogie re-entered my vocabulary. Um, but I had to kind of constantly look over my shoulder to make sure I wasn't getting bunny ears. I hadn't done that in about 25 to 30 years. Um, and, and, and the chant, first is worst, second is best, third is the one with the hairy chest. That came back. All of these little things that had been left in the first grade vault were back in my life again. And you think about that. Now, how, how is that possible? Because no, there's, no, there's no like concerted effort to keep all of those things alive. It just organically, through tradition, every first grade class gets, receives that liturgy, right? And, and, and they maintain it. And it vanishes third grade on. But it's still going with those little first, second, and third grades. That's the power of tradition. Don't even try to keep it alive. It just stays alive. And for us, the liturgy that we do every week, our adherence to the Christian calendar, are intended to establish powerful formative traditions. And following this word of thanks, Paul gives some instruction that's pretty straightforward. He says, men, husbands, keep your hair short or uncovered, short and uncovered, and women and wives, keep your heads covered. Is that clear? <laughs> Next week, you got a week to kind of make the proper adjustments if you need to. 
And then I, we'll just kind of go from there, right? Peace be with you. It'd be, it'd be nice if we could just say that, but we can't. What, are, what in the world are we supposed to do with this text? Like the last time I preached, there were a couple of uh, contexts that we had to deal with. And that's true again today. First, there's the biblical context. Because underneath what Paul is saying is uh, a lot of biblical theology on gender roles. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas, sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so those, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, explain to us the equality that exists between men and women. Both are image bearers of God, right? Created in his image. Created to co-reign over all of creation as God's regents or his representatives on earth. So Genesis 1 kind of gives us a high level view of creation. And then Genesis chapter 2, that we zoom in on what's actually taking place. And there we get a little bit of, of depth and nuance to what was provided in chapter 1. And there, what we learn is that Adam is not finding satisfaction and fulfillment in his relationship with the animals. They're not providing really what he, his soul longs for. So God then causes a deep sleep. This is chapter 2, verse 21 and following. Causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, God took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. It brought her to the man. Then the man, man said, This is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the language used there to describe the woman is helper, easer. And the idea is that Adam, on his own, was lacking. So God provided Eve, who perfectly complimented him, Adam. Complimented him sexually, physiologically. I mean, just looking at them uncloaked, you would have kind of figured out that there was a match. Um, psychologically, but it went deeper than that. It was psychologically, emotionally, there was a, a complementary nature to, to, their, to their identities, to each identity. And as our text in Corinthians said, says, men and husbands are to be head over their women and wives. Um, and while there is equality between the genders and their, and their value, there is a difference in the roles that they play. If we were to take a biblical look at genders, a more comprehensive one, we would see that um, husbands and males are to provide headship, that is primary leadership and responsibility in the relationship. For example, let me, and there's lots of places to go, but one, one example. If you remember, not long after Eve is created, she takes the fruit that Satan is tempting her with and eats of it and then gives some to Adam, who's just sort of sitting there on the sidelines watching all this unfold. You might think 
that God, following that, would approach Eve, right? Because she, she's the one who started it. But no, God goes straight to Adam and says, what happened? Right? Because Adam was the head, the, the representative of the relationship, the leader in the relationship. So he bore the responsibility for all that happened on that day. And women are, are called to affirm and honor their husband's leadership. Now, let me back up for a second. If you, if, if you, th- when I say all that about headship and leadership, if you're interpreting that as a, as a license to sit on your recliner, drink a beer and bark orders at your wife and kids, and you've completely missed, missed what I'm saying. I mean, the, the language Paul uses in Ephesians is that husbands are to act like Christ acts for the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He poured himself into it, giving his very life up for it and uses all of his energies sitting at the right hand of the father to beautify the church. That's what the call of husbands is when we're talking about headship. It's a call to responsibility. And women are called to affirm and honor their husband's leadership so long as it's aligned with God's leadership or Christ's leadership. The language is that women and wives are to provide help, right? The same term used um, to describe the the Holy Spirit. It's not not a a derogatory term. Our church is a member of the Acts 29 network. And there's quite a bit of diversity between churches within the Acts 29 network. Um, Methodologically, a lot of these churches will do church differently. Different methodologies, different theologies. There's actually uh, some, some diversity there. But Acts, the Acts 29 network is united in its position, um, in its complementarian position when it comes to gender roles, which means complementarian, which means that while women, men and women are equal in their value, they've been created to fulfill slightly different roles. And head pastors and elders in Acts 29 churches will always be men as a result of this. And we believe this to be biblical. Um, Not all Christians agree. Um, And if they don't, they're called egalitarians. That's basically the two camps you've got in this little debate. Complementarians, egalitarians. But we're complementarian. But we mean we believe that male and female have a complementary relationship. They're unique. And and each men need women. Women need men. They go together. Let's move on to this cultural context. We talked a little bit about the biblical context. Um, what kind of cultural backdrop do we need in order to understand 1 Corinthians chapter 11? In the ancient world, a woman's hair was considered an object of lust. So for a woman to have her hair uncovered and, and even worse, unfurled and just sort of flowing, that in a worship service, that would have been akin to... A woman wearing some very scant outfit or even like a bikini to church. It's, just, it's not appropriate. And so Paul is, is that, that's the backdrop. And that helps us make sense a little bit to what's just right off the bat, what's going on. Now, the one big question is, why is this even an issue at the church in Corinth? And there's a lot of debate on that. And it, and it may be that Paul has... Um, Paul has in other sections of scripture has said that there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek there's neither male nor female there's neither um, 
for free or slave. He makes all these distinctions. He says that Christ breaks down the barriers that exist between these, these different divides that we have. And what some people have said is that the church at Corinth heard that message. They received that message. It said, there's neither male nor female. Well, we want to expedite our sanctification and just become gender neutral. So they were shedding all of these little cultural um, symbols or emblems of their gender identity and becoming sort of gender neutral, right? And Paul maybe corrected them saying, look, don't, don't go. I didn't, when I said there's neither male nor female, I didn't say, you know, start cross-dressing or, 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 or being, being so neutral on this. No, there still needs to, we still need to maintain the uniqueness of how God created us. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying gender distinctions do matter. He's affirming the cultural practices of the day and saying, and, and, but, but the point for us today is boys be boys, girls be girls. And this is actually a very appropriate message for our own day. There is an order to the world. And back in Genesis chapter 1, God was creating um, each day. And, and, and what he did is he supplied boundaries and separation between things. So much of what God is doing in that early, uh, in those early chapters in the creation is He's forming, He's forming things, He's creating boundaries. Boundaries are good things. In our own, in our own day, we kind of see boundaries as the big problem, and the whole goal of life is to kind of get out from under different boundaries. But that's not the biblical view. You know, for example, uh, God created the waters, and He supplied the waters with fish. The fish were bounded by the water. And that was a good thing, right? Could you imagine if a fish said, you know, I feel really stifled and limited by this boundary of water. I want to hop up on dry land. And that fish did. Well, we all know what would happen, right? The boundary was life-giving to the fish. And men and women have glories, Paul tells us, unique to themselves. There is a glory of maleness that is unique to men. And there's a glory of femaleness that is unique to women. And when we begin to blur those gender lines, we tarnish those unique glories. And this is why for Christians we maintain that there needs to be a degree of um, diversity, right? When it comes to marriage, there needs to be both one male and one female when it comes to marriage. In order for marriage to properly flourish. Because when a a marriage happens. The glories of maleness. And the glories of female. Come together. And create a. um, A far more glorious thing. Than what was going on when the two were separate. And the weaknesses too of male and female. Get kind of knocked off. The hard edges of those weaknesses get knocked off. As male and female unite. And that diversity of male and female rubs together, right? It makes it, it makes it stronger than what it had been previously, the relationship. So men and women need each other. We're interdependent upon one another. And Paul makes that very clear towards the end of the passage, verses 7 and following. And he's saying we must honor the, the distinctiveness of both males and females. Paul is calling for us. To treat the glories and the weaknesses of both male and females lovingly. So how do we do that? In Paul's day, it was head coverings and hairdos. That was one way 
of um, showing honor to the opposite sex. And that was something that they were ignoring or, or violating. But simply because head coverings are not an issue for us in 2014, at least in America, it doesn't mean that we have nothing to learn from what Paul is saying. The, the principle here is treat your spouse and those of the opposite sex respectfully. Wives, how do you speak about your husbands when talking to your friends? Do you treat your husband with respect? Are you sensitive to their weaknesses? Do you avoid talking badly or disrespectfully about them? Or do you take kind of cheap jabs at them when they're they're not around? Now, that's not to say that there may not be a situation where there's some kind of abuse going on. I mean, you need to get help if you need to get help. Um, I'm talking more about kind of gossipy, bad talk about your spouse. Husbands, how do you treat your wives? How do you treat their glory? Do you have your affections set on them? Do you speak lovingly about your wife to others? Men, those that are not not married, or even those that are, do you respect the glory of women? Or do you do what our culture does by sort of objectifying um, women and treating them as objects? If you do, you are shirking your responsibility um, as men and your responsibility of leadership. It is important that we treat one another lovingly. It's, it's actually been said that the way that you treat others is an expression of how you believe God has treated you. The way that you treat others is an expression of how you believe God has treated you. So if you're angry and judgmental towards others a lot, you may have uh, this idea that God is kind of angry. He's an angry tyrant kind of looking down upon you, dissatisfied with how you're acting. Paul here is providing an order for how we relate to one another that reflects how God in Christ has related to us. The order is that we should honor and respect one another. Now, at the beginning of the sermon, I said that the purpose of reading scripture was to see who God is. It is us relating to God. So what do we learn about God from this text? Who is God fundamentally? Um, who is God? Like if we had to boil his identity down, I mean, God is just sort of a vague term. How can we identify God at his most basic level? Can we say that he's ruler? Well, in order to be ruler, he's got to have something to rule over. And there was a time before he had any little things to rule over. So at his core, I wouldn't want to say that he's ruler, because then what was he before there was anything to rule over? Is he at his core creator? Well, there's the same thing. There was a time before creation. So we can't really say that he he is at his core a creator because who was he before he created anything? From at his core, God is a loving father who has been pouring himself into the son, Jesus, from all eternity. Right? It's appropriate. Jesus taught us to pray our father. And that's appropriate because at its very core, that is who God is. A father pouring his love into his son, Jesus. And then Jesus responds to the father's wave of love toward him with love. And it's the spirit, the third person of the Trinity, that's mediating this this love to and fro. 
Now this fountain of love has spilled over and boom, here we are. That's how we got here. Right? Just as people procreate in love, so God, as the Trinity is 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 fully satisfied and, and, and completely happy in and of itself, just sort of creation just sort of spills over um, from that. And we've been created to have fellowship with this God, but we rebelled. And as redemptive history unfolded, we learned that the Son, being filled with the Father's love, has come back. He's come back to us to win back a people, the church. And in Christ, we are united with God and His people. We are brought under what Michael Reeves calls a cascade of love. Right? It's, you are loved more than you can imagine. But there's an order to the love. At the top, there's God. Loving the Son. And the Son, wooed by the love of the Father, loves the Father. And then the Son and the Spirit is busy mediating this love. And then Christ loves the church and has given himself for the church. And the church, wooed by the love of Christ, loves Christ in response. And then husbands, too, secure in the love of Christ, love their wives. And wives, in response, Love their husbands. That's the cascade of love that Christianity speaks of, that Michael Reeves speaks of. And marital, so so marital love and how we love um, those of the opposite sex is a reflection of a deeper love. And if you're not drawing your sustenance from this deep reservoir of love that's found in Christ, then you're going, to be, you're going to be lacking. You won't have the resources necessary to love others. And you won't have the resources necessary to love those of the opposite sex and, your, and even your spouse if you're married. There's a story, I heard a pastor relay a, a story um, about uh, South, it was South Africa apartheid, which um, was basically racial segregation between um, all sorts of races, blacks, whites, very hostile, um, and then even other ethnic groups were kind of tiered, and they, 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 there was segregation, and they couldn't interact, the different races, and then Nelson Mandela comes to, comes to leadership, and he breaks down apartheid, but there's all of this lingering bitterness, and anger, and even violence that still exists, you can't just flip a switch and turn hatred off, Right? So they had to deal with all of this. And so Nelson Mandela appointed Desmond Tutu, the bishop, to develop a plan for trying to reconcile these tensions. And one thing he did, which seems kind of crazy, the police, who was predominantly white and uh, corrupt, he said they could confess their wrongs, their crimes against others. Um, and they would not be, they, they, would be, they would receive mercy and grace as a result of that. And so Vanderberg, a police officer named Vanderberg, was uh, confessing in a courtroom. And one of the family, the, uh, the lady that received some of this wrong that came her way as a result of Vanderberg was present. She was sitting there, she was very old at this point. And Vanderberg is explaining how he... Went into this lady's house, kidnapped her son, uh, and he and other police officers beat him to death. 
burned his body to remain all remove all evidence of what had happened. This was a decade before. And then two years after that, Vanderberg kidnapped her husband, held him hostage for years, and beat him, restrained him. Um, even had the wife come out to meet with her husband to see if they could get him, because the husband was supportive of, uh, or not supportive of apartheid, and that's why they were going after him in the first place. This segregation, this racial segregation. And she came to visit him, and um, he did not. He did not recant his views. He said, "Forgive, forgive these men." Is what he told his wife. And eventually, they beat him to death and burned him as well. So he's confessing all of this. She's right there, hearing it all. And the judge looks at her and says, what, what can we do to provide some sort of resolution to, to these wrongs? And she said three things. I want him to tell me where my husband and son were burned so that I can take up some of the ground and give my, my, my two loves the closest thing possible to a proper burial. I want Vanderberg to come to my house once a month so that I can feed him a meal and love him. I have no one else to love, and I want to show love towards him. And three, I want someone to help carry me over to Vanderberg, because she couldn't even walk at this point, to hug him and tell him that I forgive him. So two of the bailiffs are sent, and they pick up this lady and they carry her towards Vanderberg and as, as she's approaching him he faints Over, he's just anxious and overwhelmed at this love and he falls down passes out and when he comes to the whole courtroom is singing Amazing Grace and she hugs him and she forgives him now you hear that story you think that's unbelievable you know that didn't you're just watching the Hallmark Channel again Casey and the, the truth is, though, I don't even think the Hallmark Channel would come up with something as crazy as that. That, it, that is unbelievable how that lady responded to this man that had been horrible to her family. And yet, that episode is a shadow, it's a reflection of the gospel, right? We took Christ, God's only son, we beat him. We mocked him. We crucified him. We made sure he was dead. And yet, as a result of that, Christ, God the Father, has invited us to receive mercy. And not only mercy, he's provided adoption. And he's even invited us to participate uh, in, a, in a feast with him. And so... That's, that's a powerful thing, right? That sort of love, it knocked out Vanderberg, right? That kind of love knocked him, knocked this big, bur- I don't know what he was like. I assume he was kind of a bitter, hardened man. It knocked him flat on his face. He passed out as a result of it. When we consider that love that has been shown to us in Christ, it should, have, it should affect how we relate to our spouses. It should affect... How we relate to those of the opposite sex. How we relate to one another. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this power.
powerful love, and we confess that we um, we kind of become desensitized to it. It doesn't shock us like it should. It's scandalous, and yet we sort of can yawn about it at times. Shake us from that. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts to uh, what you've given us and, and that we would be transformed from the inside out so that we can really be your church. We pray that this meal would be a sanctifying experience for us corporately. Uh, Christian growth is not just about individuals growing up into more Christ-like, but it's about entire bodies of believers growing into maturity. And so we ask that as we participate in this meal together as a body, that we would grow more mature, uh, more Christ-like, more loving, more tender, and uh, warmer as a result of participating in this meal. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.